welcome to Deeper, a podcast of Wollongong Baptist Church. The podcast aims to follow the sermon series and to take our congregation deeper into God's Word. Good morning, I'm Sarah Leffley and I'm here with Pastor Rod Bailey. How are you today, Rod? I'm doing as well as I can on a Monday morning. Yeah, this is a bit out of character <laughs> for us, right. although we're making a pattern of it this term with uh, unusual timing. Uh, it's variety, spice yeah. of life. Tell us about your weekend. You've been full on at church and then preparing yeah. a podcast. What's it been like? Yeah, well, I, I got to watch our church soccer team play at semi-final on Saturday afternoon, and we won 3-0, so it's oh, good. What a great victory. And so we get um, a, a redo of last year's grand final because we're playing Awaken again in wow. the grand final next Saturday. I don't I don't know what happened last year. I'm assuming we didn't win. We didn't win. Oh, no. No, and we'd been, I think, just basically undefeated or something in the season, right. so it was a bit of an upset, so. Oh, they got their chance to um, refresh. Oh, this is um, dangerous for me. I get a little bit too attached to soccer games, so <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be asking about it until after <laughs> the ugly side comes out, I think, at soccer games for me. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about this passage of Acts. Um, I really loved hearing from Mel Higgins about her work with Matt, mm. um, and I, it left me with a lot of questions about my own commitment to mission. So let's mm-hmm. get stuck in. Sure. All right. I found that the messages from the Holy Spirit so far in the chapters in Acts, and particularly in this chapter, just seem to be so clear and very direct. Mm. And yet I feel that we don't experience that same kind of clarity mm-hmm. in um, commissioning to go out and do mission. How are we able to know the difference between feeling led to do something um, or just doing what it is that we desire? Yeah, we we obviously all long for clarity all the time in what we're doing. And, yeah, we read the New Testament and think, wow, wouldn't it be nice if it was just like that? And I, I think there is something unique about that period. One, because you've got apostles commissioned um, by God to take the, the gospel for the first time. And I think there are some particular things that happen in their lives, which, uh, again, the descriptive versus the prescriptive. That we've yeah we've got to not spend the whole time just longing that we had uh, Paul's experience, but I think um, that question's a helpful one because it gets to the point of motives. Um, because sometimes we are worried that our motive is just that oh well this suits me, rather than I'm really being led by the Lord to do this. And uh, Proverbs 16, verse 2, uh, motives are very important and God weighs them. Mm. Um, so we need to check our hearts as we uh, make decisions. But I think as with all guidance, um, firstly, it's got to be in accord with God's word. When it comes to mission, we know that that's true. So we don't really need to ask that question. God wants his gospel to go out. Um, but then I think secondly, we've got to commit our plans to the Lord. Uh, Proverbs 16 would say that, um, lots of places in terms of prayer. So we want to be praying about decisions. And um, sometimes even after we've prayed, we feel uncertain and or we feel like uh, perhaps it's just a wisdom decision, but I'm not sure what the wise choice is here. I mean, again, uh, Scripture would say keep praying. I mean, yes. or ask for wisdom, James 1.5. You know, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God for it, who gives generously uh, to all who ask without finding fault. Um, so I think prayer is a big one, but I think we need to pray with others sometimes. We need the counsel of other people, and I think if we can have several people praying, it doesn't mean that um, they will have the perfect answer and tell you what to do in your life, but I, I think it's great um, to have others uh, committing to that, uh, particularly if a person's married, to be praying with their spouse, um, to thinking through decisions together, I think is really important. Um, 
And and we certainly are just to use the minds that God has given us, like um, thinking clearly and using what wisdom he's blessed us with. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, we've just got to be careful that we don't go with what we think is the smart decision, which is often worldly wisdom, and it's not always the choice. Uh, because as you um, put in that question, you know, feeling led versus what we desire, often what we desire is the more comfortable yes. route. <laughs> and so we'll always, you know, our worldly wisdom will go, well, that would be an easy, you know, result for me. Um, so we've got to be careful that sometimes the right decision is the hard decision. Um, and we've really... Perhaps we've got to spend more time. I think we live in a fast-paced world where we don't have enough time to meditate and stop mm. and reflect. And I find for myself I really need to say, no, that's not coming quickly to me because I need to sit and stop with this and think through it. And um, our enemy is often trying to make decisions too quickly. Yeah. Uh, so I think you know, sitting with something for a couple of weeks or a month, there's nothing wrong with that if we have the time to, especially if it's a big decision. Um, more chance to hear from the Lord as we read his word, as we pray, as we seek counsel from others. Mm. I really liked the um, the example that you gave in your sermon of that South Korean pastor, how he got his, I guess, his feedback or his information or his message from someone who he obviously trusted their wisdom mm. and their godliness. Mm. And he did pray about the decision before he made it. So thank you for giving us a good example <laughs> and then summing it up in such clear points for us to remember. Um, it was very clear that the Jewish sorcerer should not be allowed to operate based on the Old Testament scripture that you read for us, yep. and yet he was operating. Mm-hmm. Why were the Jews in the area not opposing him? Yeah, well, I think firstly Cyprus is largely Gentile territory, um, so the Jews are a small, a small minority. And I guess this guy in particular is an attendant of the Gentile leader of the province, mm. you know, the proconsul. And so he's kind of protected and out of reach. I mean, he's sitting with the elite circle, as it were, um, and I'm sure local Jews would have been upset. They would know about him. But I guess if he's hanging out with, um, yeah, the proconsul, you know, he's, he's not going to be turning up at the synagogue on Saturday, and so they're not probably getting a chance to say anything or speak into his life or oppose him perhaps. So I think there's that. Um, and it's not surprising that a proconsul would have a sorcerer or magician in his entourage. Like the Romans were very syncretistic with their beliefs. You know, okay. they had various gods. They'd adopted the Greek pantheon. And so they were often superstitious about things. They wanted people around them that would uh, look for signs and, you know, perhaps offer spells or have amulets or anything that might bring discernment. This was mm. a common kind of practice uh, in the Roman Empire. So... Yeah. It, I mean, <laughs> I, when I first read the passage and, you know, Sergius Paulus is described as an intelligent man and then he has this guy. Yes. How intelligent is he? Um, but, you know, that would have been considered a smart move to involve somebody like that in your circle because it might be a way to discern big decisions because they recognize something that there was a spiritual dimension or that there was knowledge that could be found. Um, they were just looking in the wrong places by having such a person. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, Also, would there be maybe some danger in opposing this sorcerer as being interpreted as opposing Sergius Paulus himself? 
I think so, yes. You, you have to be careful. Uh, the Jews were when they were in Roman territory because the Romans ruled. Um, it wasn't a place where there was um, concern of uprising, though, I, which probably tells you that the Jewish population was pretty limited. Yeah, right. So it was a province with no standing army or barracks, uh, whereas in Jerusalem they had a big army because they were expecting trouble. And so, yeah, that tells you something, too, that it was relatively peaceful. But yes, you didn't go sort of seeking to um, pick on anyone that was under the the ruler of the area. Yeah, right. Um, I am the converse to you. I I don't love history, but I have been perhaps made to rethink that um, in Acts because it really does seem that understanding these towns and understanding these places and who was there really is the key key to understanding the whole passage. it's hard work for me, I'm not going to lie. But I love that each week you and Mark and Ken, you get up and you give us that information because um, it really does just add so much clarity that I otherwise would be missing out on. Yep, I think it's key. Yeah. yeah. Um, you also made the point of expecting that sort of occult or demonic kind of opposition the more that the word spreads, especially in new places. Mm. Um, should we still be expecting that today? Um, And is there some kind of pattern that we can see in um, Simon in, I think it's Acts 8, and, you know, even Jesus's experience of demonic opposition? Yeah, I think so. I think many commentators have pointed out over the last few decades that there seems to have been, you know, a surge of demonic activity, opposition in the time of Christ, Mm. and then the establishment of the church in Acts. Um, Unsurprising because Satan is going to stand against you know, the spread of the gospel at these key moments, as it were, in salvation history. Mm. Um, You know, he's bold. Um, I mean, he doesn't have any problem in testing Jesus himself in the wilderness. Like he, um, you know, barges right in with those opportunities. I guess he thinks if I can shut this thing down now, then, you know, a bigger win for me. And so I think, yes, we see a lot of it in the gospels and in the book of Acts. Yes, there's the case of Simon the Sorcerer in Acts 8. Um, and yeah, that was a key moment because it was the gospel going to Samaria. Oh, that yeah. was stage two. Now the gospel's going to the Gentiles again, spiritual opposition. So mm. I think there's a pattern here. Uh, we're going to see it again in Acts 16 with the possessed girl who can fortune tell. And then Paul um, commands the evil spirit to come out of her. And why and, is that key? What's happening there? Well, I think... Um, Again, she's following them around for several days, uh, shouting um, behind them, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way um, to be saved. And you think, well, that's a good message, right? Like, (laughs) keep her on that record. She can keep saying that. Town crier. But uh, Paul sees it as as opposition even though, and I guess perhaps we don't know the timing because we just get a sentence like that. But maybe she's doing that at key moments when he's trying to persuade people or talk with people Mm. that are opposed and so uh, she's putting him in, as it were, straight away. Oh, this guy's yeah. you know, a Christian sort of thing. And don't listen to him, perhaps, is the inference on the back of it, even though what she says is true. So, yeah, I think there these moments where um, there's an opportunity for the gospel to go forward, uh, we see opposition over and over. Um, I think in terms of... Yeah, thinking about it for ourselves today, um, we often think we see less of that today. Mm. And, um, you know, Western, I guess, um, culture seems very suspicious of such things. Uh, This doesn't happen. Or, you know, if it does, it happens in Africa or somewhere like that. Where um, I think there is certainly parts of the world where it's happening today. And I think in part that's because people are opening themselves up to occult practices. So we talk about... 
um, things that happen in Africa. Well, that's because there's a lot of superstitions and alcohol practices that yeah. are seeking to make contact with the dead and all this kind of thing. So um, I think that's unsurprising. There's a lot of that in um, some of the Asian culture uh, with uh, worship of ancestors and a number of things. So, and those um, sort of animistic practices often sort of sit over the top of whatever is said to be the mainline religion. So you can have Buddhism in Thailand, but really there's a lot of animism sitting over the top of mm. it. You know, you can have supposedly a Muslim country in northern Africa, but they're still practicing the things that have been going on for centuries right. um, in terms of witch doctors yeah. and looking for healing and, you know, which have got nothing to do with the supposed religion of the country. Yeah, sure. That makes a lot of sense. So then how do we... Do do we need to protect ourselves in Western society if we're not so open? Um, and if so, how do we how do we do that? Yeah, well, I think um, yeah, Paul tells us um, you know this is in Ephesians six verse twelve that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Um, I think this is a really interesting question as we think about expecting opposition today. Um, yeah, I think uh, in that same passage, the goal for which believers are meant to be clothed with divine armor is simply to stand firm. Uh, four times in Ephesians 6, uh, from verses 10 to 14, told to stand firm, to stand, to resist, uh, hold your ground. Um, so it's not... Um, I think some time spiritual warfare, in um, particularly in Pentecostal circles today, is spoken as if we're on the front foot and we're going out and finding demons mm. and attacking them and throwing sort of our armory at them. That is not the picture we get in Ephesians 6. It's rather that uh, the arrows of the evil one are going to come at us all the time in various temptation and attacks, and we are to stand firm by holding to God's word, by praying, by meeting with his people. You know, the armor that we have is very simple things. They're not any special uh, you know, weapons or things that we're given here. This is the, the bread and butter means of grace for every believer. Um, so we're to stay on track in those things. So, you know, it, it's not that there is not an issue. I mean, James 4, you know, talks about the devil being a prowling lion, Um but there, again, the way we're to resist is through humility. Um, we stay under God's um, power. We trust in him and his provision. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I, I think being aware of what um, the devil's methodologies can be, like um, there's lots in the New Testament about this. You know, he's the father of lies, John 8. Yeah. So we expect him to oppose the truth. And so we need to stand for the truth and um not be put off. Um, you know, he's going to oppose God's word. He's going to cast doubt on God's goodness. He's going to seek to hinder mission, uh, all of these things. But I think as believers, we're told to just go about our business trusting in the Lord. And as C.S. Lewis famously said, you know, there, there's two equal and opposite errors um, into which uh, humans fall in their thinking about the devil. Uh, one is to disbelieve his existence. And therefore, open ourselves up to you know not understanding Ephesians six twelve that we are in a spiritual battle, and being um, ignorant of that. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them, as yeah. Lewis puts it, and spend all our time sort of thinking there's you know a demonic activity in every you know little step that I make, and you know I need to look for that under every um, 
you know, lounge that I sit on and so on. You know, so there's extremes that believers go to, which can either debilitate them or mean that we're naive mm. and we want to be neither. Uh, we need to meet in the middle as usual. There's a there's a midpoint in understanding and responding as Christians. Um, so it's about standing firm in our faith um, and trusting God. Um, there's a really wonderful, comforting simplicity in standing firm. I mean, not that it's easy to stand firm, but at least that it's easy to remember that that's what we need to do. Um, and I guess if we know the gospel well, then the easier it becomes to stand firm in it. Absolutely. Wonderful. Um, why is it in the sermon that Paul gives, a wonderful long sermon that he gives, why does he start all the way back at deliverance in Egypt and then talk about the judges? He seems to choose very specific parts of Scripture to refer to in mm. this story, and it doesn't all obviously point to the end message. Why does he choose his starting point and what he speaks about? Yeah, look, it's a great question, and um, I, I found it um yeah, quite thought-provoking, um, reading a little bit of commentaries on this. Uh, apparently, there was a list of key events and verses that would often be rehearsed by Jews as they oh. went through their history. And so what um, Paul is doing is going straight to the playbook, apparently. He's um, looking at key passages, so they would always go to Deuteronomy 4 and talk about how um, you know they'd been saved from Egypt. They'd seen these ama- amazing signs and wonders from the Lord, and through that, he was choosing them. They were his people. Um, you know, he was their God. And then they would always go to uh, one Samuel thirteen fourteen apparently and talk about well, Saul was the first king, but he wasn't a man after God's own heart. David was, and that's why there's the shift to David. And then you go to two Samuel seven and say, well. The Davidic covenant, the promises to David, an eternal kingdom. And so there was this sort of set thing that you're supposed to do. And um, Paul does that perfectly. And the reason he's doing it is is not just to go by the playbook, but because that would win respect. He's saying what they know. Yes, they'd just be nodding. Yes, these things are all correct. And so he's winning a hearing so that he then can go on and say, well, the bit you're missing is at the end here. It all goes to Jesus. You know, here's the Messiah you're waiting for. So it's it's clever in that sense, um, but I think there's also uh, a question about why those particular things, um, Egypt and judges. I think Egypt, the reason they had to start there was that was the creation of the nation. You know, mm. when they're given the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, but the you know Exodus from Egypt is the great salvation event of the Old Testament, and, and it's that that points to Jesus. Why do we do the Lord's Supper? Well, it's a uh, you know, it's a fulfillment of the Exodus. You know, there's the great salvation event in the Old Testament. Here is the great thing that's pointing forward to in Christ. And with Judges, well, you've got the period where um, it's a mess. We need a king. We need a savior. And so, again, that points forward to, well, Jesus is the ultimate king and savior they've been waiting for. He's the one that won't decay. This is what we need. I think so. In both cases, uh, these events point forward beautifully to Jesus. I love Paul. I just think he's so clever, but I love that he's playing a Jewish game here, but then offers, um, you know, in telling the Jewish story, offers a more satisfactory, a more fulfilling end to that story. And so they ask him to come back and do it again the next week. I just think, exactly, how clever. What a wonderful game he's played. I really like I can't. I want, to, I, want to, I want to meet Paul one day. That's yeah. all I can say. Um, what does he mean in verse um, 46, verse 46, it says, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. What does Paul mean when he says 
not considering themselves worthy. It's a really funny way to speak about it. Yeah. But it's part of a pattern of Paul's way of dealing with the Jews again. Oh, he's still um, playing the yeah, game. Yeah, so Romans 11 verse 1, uh, 11 verse 11, um, he says, Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Mm. He's like, if I can make my own people envious of the, the gospel that's now going to the Gentiles, and that might mean that they then respond yeah. and <laughs> accept Jesus, well, then I'm going to do that. And so I think that's partly what's going on here. Um, uh, he, you know, it's another way to describe or come at the issue of salvation, um, and it, it's also putting it on the line. You know, their rejection of Jesus is their choice, their responsibility. Mm. If you have chosen to reject what has been promised for ages in this Messiah that would come, well, that is your choice. But if you do that, then I'm going to go to the Gentiles and speak to them. Perhaps then you'll be interested um, to listen as you see them come to faith. So. Um, it is a unique phrase, though. Um, eternal life only gets used as a phrase twice, and it's only in this section. Yeah, um, right. Verse 46, but again in verse 48, where he says, um, you know. Is it the, the, about them being appointed? Appointed yeah, to eternal life. Which is a weird life. contrast to putting the onus on them. Yes. Yeah. And so you get the dual um, tension, which always exists in Scripture, of, well, we need to respond and make a choice, mm. and we are responsible and will be held accountable for our rejection of the gospel. And at the same time, God elects and appoints and chooses those who will come. Um, that tension, Arminian Calvinist um, tension that runs through Scripture is one that we always battle with and yes. can have endless discussions about. Um, but I, I think you can't say uh, either or. <laughs> you have to say both and. And so that means that there'll not be a person um, who on the judgment day can say, well, it was not fair because they will have felt that they have made a choice mm. to reject. Uh, at the same time, there won't be a person who has received Christ who will take credit for themselves but will say, <laughs> all glory to God because he opened my eyes. So that I could so you see that in either way, um, God gets the glory and it's not about us. And I think that's the important thing, which we find so humbling and difficult, I think. Um, but, yeah, so it's, a, it's an unusual phrase and um, – Paul's going to turn to the Gentiles, but it's not an absolute turning away. Like if it was like, oh, well, I've had it with you guys. This is the first town I'm in. I'm never going to speak to the Jews again. But no, like every city he'll go to, he'll go to the synagogue, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. It's just a way of saying, okay, you've had enough. You want to throw me out of town. I'm going to focus on these guys. Yeah, right. I've never um, thought that there was evidence for the both-and arguments so close together before in the Bible. <laughs> I've always looked, you know, at a predestination passage and then looked at a passage where it talks about people's response. I love that these verses are separated by just one other. <laughs> yes. That's great. Um, when Paul and Barnabas are eventually run out of town, they shake the dust off their feet, what happens to these new believers and converts? Are they discipled in some way? Yeah, um, you know, they were often expelled from towns. This is the first mm. of many, um, so we're going to see this pattern over and over. But they always returned to strengthen the believers. Um, they would they would come back and disciple them. So even on this first journey, on the way home, they go back through the towns that they went to and re-strengthen them. So we get to Acts 14, the end of the first um, missionary journey, verses 21 to 23, and it says they preached the gospel in that city, which was Derby, where they were, um, and then they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, mm. which is what we're talking about, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them uh, to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for each, uh, for them in each church 
and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord. So they've got quite a project. Like we we assume, oh, they're just randomly running yeah. to towns and just saying something about Jesus and getting booted out. But no, they've got a plan, and we only get little hints of it here and there in these verses. But they they want to establish a church. They appoint leaders. Um, they're, they're wanting it to continue. It's not... Um, you know, and they're going to go back on subsequent journeys and revisit these places. How are you going? And if they can't get there, then they will send other people. So, you know, they eventually send Titus to hold down the fort at Crete. They send Timothy to Ephesus. They send Apollos between Ephesus and Corinth. Like mm. um, Paul will write letters. Like he, he's constantly aware of the need of the churches to establish them, to keep them going. He's so worried that, um, humanly speaking, they'll fall over from his lack of attention. So there's a lot of... Uh, forethought and ongoing planning to you know, strengthen believers. It's a hard enough work to go there in the first place, but the thought of coming back after experiencing that opposition, I can remember not vibing with a class when I was a casual teacher once and then knowing I had to go back and see them again the next day. <laughs> and that was hard enough walking into that room, let alone to a town of people that ran you out of there. What yes. a work. I'm grateful for the <laughs> for the disciples who were called to do that. Yep. Um, the pattern of so many of the other chapters in Acts is that there's this kind of mass conversion and then a mass baptism to follow, mm-hmm. and yet baptism doesn't get a mention in this passage. Are we to assume it was done, or is there a reason it's left out? Yeah, I think usually um, if baptisms have happened, they're noted. Mm. So I, I assume um, that it's because there just wasn't enough time and they're thrown out of town. And we get this a few times, like it just happens so quickly. Um, you know, they've only got two Sabbaths in this place. Um, I think uh, Thessalonica, they get three weeks there and they're booted out. So again, I don't think we get any mention of baptism. So yeah, like it, it seems a bit dependent on how long they have, whereas, you know, they're in Corinth for 18 months, they're in Ephesus for a year or so. And so in those places, we do get more. So it's not like... Um, Baptism has dropped off the to-do list. Like if we didn't see any baptisms now for the rest of the book of Acts, we'd be like, oh, yeah, it's concerning. <laughs> what's happening? But, you know, you get to Acts 16 and they've made it to Philippi and Lydia and all her household get baptized. Yeah. Uh, and then we make it to Acts 18 and they're in Ephesus and then in Corinth. And um, we get a number of people baptized in Corinth. So Paul baptizes Crispus and Gaius and Stephanus. And we don't even get told about that, though, in Acts, but we read that in 1 Corinthians 1. Oh, really? And they, you know, he's, he's going on about their division, and he says, well, you get baptized in the name of Jesus, not into my name. I can't even remember who I baptized. Well, hang on, I, I baptized Crispus <laughs> and Gaius and the household of Stephanus, but after that I can't remember. And so he's just playing down something because it's become an issue. But it's clear that we don't have all the records in Acts of the baptisms he's doing. Yeah. And yet we hear about them in his later letters to encourage these people that he's worried about in their ongoing sort of strengthening as believers. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I think um, I think it's just because of the circumstances, but it certainly will be a key feature going forward. I really like the Bible linking to other books of the Bible as well. I feel like it just really lends to its veracity, makes me feel so much more, I guess, connected to the passage in Acts, thinking, yes, I know that this is referenced again later. It's, there's real truth to this remarkable story that sometimes just feels too good to be true. Yeah, it's important. Yeah. Um, these are such huge examples of mission. Um you know, going to these towns for two or three weeks, as you're talking about, and the, the great work that we heard about from Mel Higgins at MAF. Again, a huge expression of mission. Are we all called to these big works of, of mission or is is are we called to different kinds? How do we balance our our commitment to discipling our own families and, you know, doing our jobs um, with these big calls to mission? 
Yeah, and I think this is the challenge when we do a book like Acts. Like, a, yeah, um, we don't want everyone to be sitting there feeling guilty every week that, oh, gee, I'm not a missionary overseas. Maybe mm. I haven't understood this passage and how I'm supposed to respond. Um, not everyone's called to be a missionary. Not everyone's called to be a full-time evangelist even. Um, uh, likewise, many other roles in the life of the church. And that is fine, but we are all called to be salt and light, Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. We are all called to be ready and prepared to give an answer of the hope to which we have, 1 Peter 3.15. Um, we're all uh, meant to be letting our conversations be full of grace and seasoned with salt, Colossians 4 verse 6, um, to change the condiments. You know, the, the Bible is peppered with all of these <laughs> um, kind of um, statements that are just for every believer at all times. You're always an ambassador. You're always representing Jesus, always ready in your actions or in your words um, to give yeah, the hope that you have. So I think it's in that sense that we need to be challenged. Um, we, we may not all... Um, be told to leave Seoul and go to Sydney or whatever it might be, but um, we're meant to always be ready in whatever circumstances, in our workplace, with our families, with our sports or hobbies, wherever we're meeting people, um, to be a, have a real sense that we're there to shine our light and to live for Jesus and to be just ready to be an example and where God gives us opportunity to share why it is that we live differently. Um, so I think that's where the rubber should hit the road for most of us. Um, but that's a big enough challenge in itself. Yeah, I think that leaves enough for me to think about anyway. I, I was guilty of sitting there thinking, do I need to go get a pilot's license? Oh, I don't know that I want to fly a plane. <laughs> but the work just sounded so good. Um, and I, I'm relieved that there's people who are called and skilled and gifted to do those wonderful things. But I do think I've got little circles to concentrate on and, and do better in, mm. um, especially in being prepared to give an answer instead of maybe sitting quietly as I have in the past. Yeah, and look, having said all that, it doesn't mean that God might not call us to something bigger. And For I think sure. sometimes we think it's like, a, I don't know, something that's um, a decision that's made at the age of 20. You know, I'm mm. either told I'm going to be a missionary, but once I've decided to head down a certain career path or whatever, that that's off, you know, you know, I can't consider that. But I think we've always got to be ready that God could give us a new stage in our For life sure. where that is a possibility and not to be close to that. Yes. That's a really helpful reminder to always be reflecting too on your current current mission work, I think. Wonderful. There's no better way to end than with an application, so we'll stop right there. Um, is there anything we can pray for you this week? Um, you could pray for um, a meeting with um, uh, Baptist Association representatives coming down on Thursday to look at land in the Cornwood oh, wow. area for potentially buying something for the church plant. We'll see. Um, nothing may happen this week, but it will be a good first step towards Great. whatever might happen under God. So yeah, pray that we'll have... Uh, we're also looking to um, interview a possible youth worker this week. So that's another Two really step. significant things for our church. All right, we'll definitely be praying for those. It's been wonderful to have you listening. I'm assuming on a Wednesday, even though we're recording on a Monday. Thanks, as always, to producer Mike Tamp. And we'll be here again next week. This has been a Wollongong Baptist Church podcast. You can listen to past sermons and deeper podcasts and also find information about our Sunday services at our website, Wollongongbaptist.org.